Let's just pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us now. Encourage us through your word. Lord, help us to understand these deep truths. Sometimes difficult, sometimes joyful truths. In your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. The title today is Our Wedding Song. The Church's Wedding Song. The Hallelujah Chorus. Weddings take a lot of planning. It takes a lot to get things right on the day. A lot of things can go wrong. And there are last minute problems. There are... The musicians don't turn up. The, you didn't put out a place for one of the crucial guests. Um, that happens. <laughs> you know, bad weather means the photos can't be done outside. All kinds of things can go wrong. Some of the guests might not know where the reception is and they assume that somebody amongst them knows where it is. And yeah, that happens too. Lots of things, all kinds of things can go wrong on the day as well as in advance. If you've seen that film with Steve Martin in it, The Father of the Bride, uh, that's a humorous take on it, but sometimes it, it shows the stress, that all the planning that goes into place for weddings. There's also the more difficult things of family conflicts and people who are at loggerheads with each other being face to face after so many years of, of not talking to each other. All kinds of things can, can occur at weddings. But there is much joy that happens at weddings as well. It's great to see young people or sometimes older people tying the knot, getting married together. Sometimes the bride and groom are just pleased to have the wedding day take place. After all the stress, it's, they just want it done. They get married, go on a honeymoon, start a new family. Even if it's just the two of them, it's a new family. Even if there aren't children, they begin a new life together. Marriage is God's blessing, God's plan for society, for a couple to grow in a loving relationship with each other. Families to be the building block of society for children to have a safe and secure place to grow up and be loved and be prepared for their lives ahead. But sadly, life isn't perfect. Relationships are not all they ought to be. Divorce happens too frequently and people aren't as loving as they ought to be. Sometimes they're looking for more out of a marriage than giving into it. And that never works well. Children often aren't cared for as they ought to be. Yet, nevertheless, a biblical marriage, which in the Bible is defined as between a man and a woman, is God's plan. It's a good plan. If anything disrupts it, it is our sin. But nevertheless, it is a good plan, a good plan. By God's common grace, marriage has worked remarkably well over the centuries. It's not perfect, but we'd be far worse off without it. It's been 
the building block of society. It's where relationships have the lowest level of breakups. Marriage is wonderful, especially when it works well. And it can work well if we follow the Maker's instructions in God's Word and if we follow them with His Spirit empowering us. When we see God's instructions for marriage, we can see that mutual submission, loving and caring for the other person is key. It's not about self-gratification, but sacrificial love to bless the other person. It's about giving rather than looking to receive. For better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. And when we are both giving, we both receive. Marriage is about giving. Marriage is God's plan for community. Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When we think of love, when we think of marriage, we usually think of emotions and we think of being happy at the circumstances we find ourselves in. But the model of love that God shows us in the Bible is about giving more than receiving. It's more blessed to give than receive. It's about loving sacrificially. It's about loving when it hurts, not just when it feels good. Later on in that same chapter, he writes, Husband, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That passage from Ephesians chapter 5 is key not in simply telling us how to have good marriage, to love the other person, rather than focusing on ourselves. It is key in that it tells us that marriage is actually an image, a visualization, or a symbol, it symbolizes the union between Christ and the church. That is the church in the sense of how it is described as all believers across both Old Testament and New Testament. This mystery is profound. The mystery of marriage. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage, like so many things in life, we have six days of work and one day of rest which symbolizes 
our life now on earth followed by eternal rest. Marriage symbolizes not just, it's not just functional in how husband and wife relate to each other, but it symbolizes a mystical union between Christ and the church. Marriage symbolizes God's plan for uniting sinners to Christ. A good marriage is not just something functional. It's not just something that happens to work. Or two people sat up home together and they love each other and they're both blessed. Marriage symbolizes the union between Christ and his people. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. How does marriage represent the mystery between Christ and the church? It's simply that the union of Christ and the church is shown in the Bible through a number of metaphors. One is that Christ is the head and the church is the body. Another is that Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. In Revelation 19, we read, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. (coughs) In the next verse, we're told that the bride is the saints. We're told clearly that the bride refers to the church. All those who have been sanctified by the, the shed blood of Jesus on the cross all who have trusted in him and his atoning work on the cross. In terms of identity, the church is the bride of Christ. And when Christ comes again, the bride will be ready. The bride is being prepared at the moment. Just like a bride would get prepared for a wedding, getting the dress, getting all the accessories, getting the the appointments to get the hair, all kinds of things, and then starts getting prepared, the makeup, all kinds of things that men know nothing about. So too, the church is in the process of being prepared in, in different ways. Those who have trusted in Christ are giving him glory by the works that they do, by the, the works in the spirit, the fruit of the spirit, the faithfulness, the testimony of faithfulness to Christ but also the church is being prepared not simply by being adorned with faithfulness but the church is being prepared by being expanded and extended and more people joining into the body of Christ each day each year the church is not ready yet because everyone has not trusted in Christ yet the gospel still goes out and more are being added day by day to the bride of Christ, to the church. Church is being prepared now, but at the end the church will be ready when Christ comes. And then the wedding feast of the Lamb will take place. Then 
Christ's people will be joined to him forever. We will be with him. Then we will see him face to face. Then we will be with him in a way in which we don't have his presence with us now. We have his presence with us, but not as close as we will have then. The way we read the Bible in the West, in the Western world, not just West Belfast, is we often look to it with an individualistic perspective. It's about me and my personal relationship, even me and my personal Jesus, as one songwriter has put it. But that's not how the Bible puts it. The Bible doesn't treat us as, God's word doesn't treat us as just individuals who, well, we're just going along our lives and we get this extra blessing. In many parts of the world, the whole topic of identity is tied up with community. The whole concept of security and stability is tied up with community and identity. People are not just individuals. They're part of, they're protected by their they belong to a community of people. With capitalism in the West, that sense of community has been eroded as people think more of themselves and what they can gain individually. But in many parts of the world still, this whole idea of community is still very strong. And in the Bible, the idea of community, the idea of corporate identity as God's people is the way we ought to approach. That's the lens through which we should understand what we're being taught here about the union between Christ and the church. Very often we think of salvation in terms of me and God. But actually what it's about is more to do with us and God. There's some of the books like Ephesians and other books, apart from maybe a couple of quotations of the Old Testament, every reference to you is in the plural, not you in the singular, as we can't tell the difference in English. Jesus isn't our personal groom. We aren't his personal bride individually. Together, we, the church is his bride. And we are part of that if we have trusted in him. So when we think of being with Christ, we should think not simply of being on our own with him, but we should think about we will be together with him. And so it's important to, to be part of his church, his people here and now, because that is who we are and that's what we will be doing there and then as well. It's interesting to note too that the marriage feast of the Lamb is a celebration, not a wedding. It's a celebration, not a wedding. Although in Revelation chapter 21 we, we read that John says he saw a new heaven and a new earth, the people of God like a bride being prepared for her groom coming down from heaven but it is not a bride 
coming to the wedding. It is like a bride coming to a wedding. But the thing is, if we have trusted in Christ, we are already united to him. We don't need to wait for a wedding ceremony for us to then legally tie the knot. We are already his the moment we place our faith in him. In some situations, like especially people who were beginning moving from behind the Iron Curtain, Soviet era countries to the West, Western Europe in the past, if they wanted to move to be able to leave the country to get married, there were travel restrictions. They weren't allowed to leave the country. People weren't allowed to go from East Germany to West just because they wanted to. But sometimes if they were married, if they were getting married, they were allowed to. But first, they had to actually have a legal ceremony that made them married so that they could justify, as a married person, being allowed to leave the country. So they had a legal ceremony first, and then they went over and had the celebration, or maybe even another reaffirmation of the legal ceremony. But then they had the celebration together. In a similar sense, when we place our faith in Christ, we are united with him. We become individually joined to him. The church is being married to Christ over and over and over as people join Christ through faith in him, as people are united to Christ through faith. In Revelation chapter 19, we read that this is a wedding feast. It is not a wedding, it's a wedding feast. When Christ comes again, legally, the bride and him are already united. In God's eyes, when somebody places their faith in Christ, when they are justified by faith, they become a new person. They are legally, they don't have the sin that was belonged to them in the past. They now have the righteousness of Christ because they are now in Christ. When someone places their faith in Christ, they are legally united to him, joined to him. And so that's why the marriage feast of the Lamb is really just the wedding reception. It's not the wedding per se. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and of his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. There is a sense in which a marriage occurs nevertheless a joining together of the groom and the bride but in the legal sense the marriage has already occurred as God's people are joined to him through faith in Christ those words for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints cause a little bit of confusion amongst evangelicals who rightly state that there is no role for works 
in our justification. Bible-believing Christians are clear that works do not contribute toward, towards our relationship with God. We can do no good works that please God naturally. But once we come to faith in Christ, by the power of his spirit working in us, we can do the good works that please him. And so not only do we stand before God on that day with the righteousness of Christ given to us, but God does even more than that. God actually works out the righteous works of Christ in and through us by his spirit, the fruit of the spirit. One reformer, Richard Hooker, wrote a few hundred years ago, The righteousness wherewith we shall be clothed in the world to come is both perfect and inherent. That whereby we are justified is perfect here and now, but not inherent. That whereby we are sanctified, inherent, but not perfect. The righteousness of Christ does not belong to us. It's Christ's righteousness given to us. It is not our inherent righteousness. It's not our own righteousness. But in our sanctification, we produce righteous works in the Spirit. We're doing that imperfectly now. But then we will do it perfectly. On that day when Christ comes, the, the imperfect works of righteousness that we see now, the works that are of sin will be gone. And only those which are of the Spirit will remain. And they will be dazzling bright. The fine linen of the righteous deeds of the saints. God goes the extra mile, not just giving us righteousness, but giving us, not just giving us the obedience of Christ to our account, but giving us the obedience of Christ working in and through us by his spirit. He adorns his righteous people with the gold, silver, and precious stones, the good works that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Describing our obedience in the spirit, gold, silver and precious stones instead of sin which is described as hay, wood and stubble which will not last on that day. Are we going to have much gold, silver or precious stones on that day? Or are we going to bring with ourselves a lot of hay, wood and stubble that will get burned up and not last? These things will relate to rewards but not the basis of our relationship with Christ, with the Father. If we want to glorify God, let's walk in the Spirit. Let's obey Him more. Let's give more glory to Him. Let's adorn ourselves with these righteous works that give Him much glory, that make us, make the church shine ever more brightly as his people, that we will give him more glory on that day. Imagine the scene. 
Christ comes to the church. He sees a righteous bride, and he sees a bride who's been adorned with the beauty of righteous works, which give glory to God. Let's adorn ourselves with more of these righteous works in the Spirit, that we may give much glory to God, that we may please Christ even more. We are adopted by the Father, justified in the Son, and transformed by the work of the Spirit. Let's be transformed more. Let's walk more obediently. Let's walk more closely with the Lord. Let's keep in step with the Spirit. When we all do that together, we will give him much glory. What a wedding day that will be. What a wedding celebration that will be. And on that day, just like after a bride and a groom, they've had their their wedding ceremony they get their photographs taken they go to the wedding reception and after the meal they have their first dance and they often dance to maybe their favourite song or it becomes their song afterwards because it means so much to them that first song that they dance to well in a sense the wedding song of the church is a chorus of hallelujahs here in Revelation chapter 19. Here in Revelation 19 and verses 1 to 6, we have this hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. Hallelujah, Yahweh, shortened to Yah. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. It is it's said four times in these half a dozen verses in this short passage. And these are the only times that this word is used in the whole of the New Testament. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Difficult words when sin is punished. And the 24 elders... And the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Handel's Messiah was a marvellous composition. And the words were almost entirely taken, well, they were entirely taken just out of the Bible. And he didn't make up his own, he just took Bible verses and put them to music. And the most famous part of that is the composition, the Hallelujah Chorus. Some people love to just listen to that on its own. They're very familiar with it. Others have come across it when a choir does an impromptu rendition of it in a in a shopping centre. You've probably seen it on YouTube a few times. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The climax of human history has come. When God's people are joined to him, when that invitation has gone out and all who have responded are there, What was promised at the fall, the victory of the seed of the woman crushing the serpent, gaining victory over the devil, has finally come. 
paradise lost has been replaced by paradise restored even better. The hopes, the faith, the perseverance, the trust, the sufferings and the trials of God's people will all have come to an end. They will all have reached their fulfillment. It might not be hallelujahs or Handel's hallelujah chorus that we'll be singing on that day. But it will be a chorus of hallelujahs. And yet, we have a wedding invitation. Sometimes, brides and grooms, the families arranging a wedding, they want to invite more people than they can actually afford to, to place. They might not have a big enough reception area, they might not be able to afford. There are limitations on who can be invited. But in God's celebration, there is no limit. Anyone who wishes can come. There are no limitations in terms of the normal weddings that we would have here. This wedding invitation goes out, as we see from Luke chapter 14 in the readings, oh, that anyone and everyone was invited. In the context of Luke 14, Jesus was sharing and teaching that although the Israelites had been those who were first invited and many of them had rejected him, that rejection results in others being invited too. There's a sense in which anybody could become an Israelite if they wanted to and, and be part of that under the Old Testament era. But now, this invitation is anybody who wishes, anybody who responds. And that's where the gospel comes in. The gospel is where we take this wedding invitation. The people can be united to Christ. Anyone from all nations, no matter what background we're from, no matter what we've done, there's more than enough forgiveness in the cross for even the worst of our sins. The only thing that's unforgivable is refusing this invitation, refusing the prompting of the Holy Spirit, saying no to the Spirit, blaspheming against the Spirit is how it's described. The only thing that's unforgivable is refusing forgiveness. Anything else that we have done can be forgiven, as many people have testified. In the parable, the wedding feast tries to illustrate the fact that everyone's invited. But actually, when you go to a wedding... The celebration is mainly made up of guests. There's only two people who get married. Everybody else is a guest. But at this wedding feast of the Lamb, there will be no guests. There will just be those who are married. Those who are united to Christ. Those who are His. In a sense, there might be the, the guests, the angels will be looking on. But in terms of people being there, the only people who will be there will be those who have placed their faith in Christ. If we want to be there, 
we need to place our faith in Christ. We need to trust in him. All others, all who oppose God, all who refuse to honour him, all who do not love him with their heart, all their heart, mind, soul and strength, and love their neighbour as themselves as well, will be cast into eternal punishment. That's what it says in verse 3, forever and ever. We need to turn to him to avoid that. We need to turn to him to receive the blessing that he offers. We might not be able to get our heads around the eternal punishment of those who do not trust in Christ, but we have to leave that with God who is just and righteous. I think that on that day when we see the the glory of the holiness that he has prepared for us, we will realize how sinful sin is and how righteous his judgments are. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Blessed are those who are invited. The gospel goes out, we are invited now. We don't have to wait until then. We need to, we need to book our place now by trusting in Christ. And those who do are blessed already. And they will be blessed then. And this call in the gospel goes out to come to this wedding feast, to be united to Christ. This call goes out throughout the Bible. This message that God is reconciling people to himself, that we are called to place our faith in him the very end in chapter 22 almost the very last words almost in the whole Bible the spirit and the bride say come and that the one who hears say come and that the one who is thirsty come that the one who desires take the water of life without price we're invited to a wedding We're invited to be united to Christ. We're invited to that wedding feast which is to come. Let's place our faith in Christ if we haven't already done so. Let's turn from our sin. Let's turn from all the ways that we would naturally do ourselves. Let's recognize that we're not as good as we think we are. And let's recognize that we need to follow him We need to be led by him. We need to submit to him. We need to receive his righteousness. We need to receive the gift of God. We need to worship him. And the best act of worship is to place our faith and trust in him. Jesus told a parable of someone who tried to turn up at the wedding feast. And he hadn't got a wedding garment on. Back in the Middle East, even recently, when people travel to a wedding through dusty streets or roads, they're often, no matter how well they might have started off in their own home, by the time they get there, they're covered in dirt, dust, and they're often given an overgarment to just cover that. Well, this man wasn't wearing that. He was coming in his own righteousness. 
He wasn't coming in the righteousness of Christ. We need to come not as we are, not being accepted as we are, but we need to come as we are with nothing in our hands to bring to be accepted in the righteousness of Christ. On that day, we will give thanks to him for all that he has done for us, all that he has done in us, and all that he has provided for us. We just have to say yes. We just have to say, I do. I submit to Christ. I do trust in him. I place my faith in him. I will follow him. I will be his. And he will be mine forevermore. What a glorious gospel we have. If you have trusted in him already, let's celebrate who we already are in Christ. And let's look forward to that wedding feast which is still to come. Let's look forward to that, in a sense, joining together in terms of our presence with him. And let's realize we are already united to him through faith. We are already accepted before God. We are already new people in Christ. And we have such a wonderful future ahead. And let's invite more to come in and be part of his people as they place their faith in him. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, how can we find words to thank you for all that you have done for us? Lord, words like hallelujah just seem so incomplete. But Lord, they express the desires of our hearts to give you thanks, to give you praise. They are feeble words from feeble hearts, Lord, but they are genuine words from genuine hearts. Lord, help us to to live for you more and more. Help us to be in love with you more and more. Help us, Lord, to serve you more and more, to love you in what we do and say and think. And we thank you, Lord, that we know we're going to be with you on that day. Nothing is going to derail your plans. We thank you, Lord, we can rest secure that you're sovereign, that you are in control. And Lord, help us to invite more and more people that they too may come into the the body of Christ, the the bride of Christ and know the blessing that is there through faith in Christ. Lord, we thank you. Help us. In Jesus' name. Amen.